Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, I'm Chris. I'm the pastor at Compass. And when I was a kid, I always dreaded it anytime we had to pick teams. You guys know the drill. You're in PE class. Teacher chooses two kids to be team captains. And then those two kids take turns picking kids one by one to be on their team. And rather than just splitting kids up by something random like birth month or the first letter of their last name, we make kids engage in this weird form of cutthroat social Darwinism that almost never makes fair teams, and instead it groups people together who are already alike. I mean, for example, teacher would pick one kid who played on school sports teams, and then he would pick another kid who was highly focused on academics, and both of those kids are chosen to be captains. And, and you would assume that, that they would logically pick kids who would give their team the best chance of winning the dodgeball game, but that is never what happens. They would just pick their friends. They'd pick the people who were just like them. So the sports kid, his first pick is, you know, his friend who he plays basketball with, who's that eighth grader who's already six feet tall and has a full beard. And then the academic kid, their first pick is, you know, her friend from chess club, the little girl with glasses and asthma. And then the picks continue to follow like that, each captain picking their friends and the people who are like them, until finally they get to the people like me who got picked last, which always drove me crazy because for the record, I'm really good at dodgeball. I had some mad skills, but it didn't matter that I had skills because kids always tended to pick other kids who were just like them. And this whole thing doesn't end when we get older either. Human beings have this tendency to self-select into social groups with other people who are just like them. People who share the same values, the same politics, the same fashion, same interests. And in a perfect world, that would be okay because we'd still interact with and have respect for people who we have huge differences with. So Cubs and Cardinals fans could be friends. Republicans and Democrats could go to church together. Country music fans and rock music fans could even date and get married, which is the story of my marriage. But we don't live in a perfect world. The world that we live in has really never been more polarized. People today self-select into ideological groups more quickly and more intensely, I think, than ever before. And the differences between people with different values, different politics, different worldviews, are not just about ideas anymore, but it's about identity. It's like, this is who I am, and if you are not like me, you are my enemy. And the introduction of the intense types of conflict that we've seen over the last several years has made it feel like that there are just certain people who we just can't have anything to do with anymore. There's people who we have to oppose, because I can only have people on my team who are just like me. And when our values and politics and our deeply held beliefs push up against each other, it creates conflict. And when that happens, it can be hard for us to know when we should bend and when we should stand firm, when we should fight and when we should just get along. So as we've been working our way through the book of Matthew, things so far have been pretty rosy. But as we get to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to see something that we haven't really seen much of yet. Conflict. 
conflict between people, between religious values, between political beliefs. And today we're going to wade into how Jesus dealt with conflict by looking at the people who he picked to be on his team. So buckle up, join me for the Get Along Message series. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also called Peter. Then Andrew, Peter's brother. Uh, James, son of Zebedee. John, James's brother. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas. Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. This right here is a list of Jesus's 12 disciples, his closest friends. This was his leadership team, the guys he spent all of his time with. And when you look at this list, it's easy to assume that they were all on the same page. I mean, Jesus called them, therefore they must have all been very similar. But that's actually not the case. We don't know a lot about all of these guys, but I wanna focus on two of them specifically. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. The Matthew that's referenced here is the same Matthew who wrote this gospel. And it's interesting to me that he included these kind of descriptive terms after their names. Every other descriptor that comes after a disciple's name that was described in this list, it described who they related, were related to or a family connection. But Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot are described by something different. They're described by their cultural background. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because it says a lot. Because zealots and tax collectors hated each other. So Matthew was a tax collector, and we talked several weeks ago about how he left being a tax collector and followed Jesus. But being a tax collector was more than just a job. It was an identity. See, Rome had dominated and occupied the Middle East with a really oppressive government that demanded taxes from the Jewish people who they ruled over. And tax collectors were local Jewish people who were given legal authority to collect Roman taxes from their own people. And these guys could also charge the people they were collecting taxes from extra money in order to line their own pockets. As a result of this, tax collectors were considered to have abandoned their families, their culture, their religion, and, and even their God in order to work and collaborate with pagan Rome. They were viewed the same as thieves and murderers. They weren't allowed to, to even enter the temple or be part of religious Jewish life. A common proverb of the day said this. It said, take not a wife out of a family wherein is a publican or tax collector, for they are all publicans or thieves, robbers, and wicked sinners. So basically what that means is this. A tax collector is not corrupt because of what they do, but because of who they are. And because that corruption is based on their identity, who they are, it also follows that everyone in their family is corrupt too. It was a pretty remarkable thing for Jesus to call Matthew the tax collector to be his follower in defiance of all religious Jewish custom. But that's not all Jesus did because Jesus also called Simon the zealot. Now the term zealot is not this description of how passionate Simon was. The Zealots were actually a political movement that existed in first century Galilee. They were these conservative Jewish fundamentalists who deeply held to Jewish traditions and held to traditional readings of the Jewish law. 
you could call them Jewish nationalists. So for an example of how these guys saw the world, they opposed the use of the Greek language in Judea because they believe this. If you're Jewish and if you live in Jewish territory, then you should speak a good Jewish language like Aramaic or Hebrew. You shouldn't use the language of Romans and pagans. If you're going to be in our land and you're going to speak our language. And there's more. The Zealots actually formed in response to Roman taxation. They thought that Rome demanding taxes was overreaching and they felt a religious imperative to not pay taxes to a pagan and non-God-fearing government. And they regularly used violence in their fight against Rome. They would do these terrorist-style attacks to get back to the glory days when their culture and when their religion ruled. And these guys especially loved to terrorize other Jews who they saw as cooperating or compromising with the Romans. And you know who the Zealots really loved to terrorize? Tax collectors. Tax collectors were widely hated, but the Zealots, they took it to this whole other bloody and violent level. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector could not have had bigger differences. One was a Jewish nationalist who believed in Jewish traditions and culture, and the other collaborated with Roman occupiers in defiance of Jewish tradition and culture. One hated the government, and the other worked with the government. One fought for his version of religious purity, while the other devalued the religious law so that he could make it in the world. One was literally a part of a group devoted to injuring and even killing the other. And Jesus chose them to be in his small group. He handpicked two guys who were as far apart as liberals and conservatives, or Bears fans and Packers fans, or Star Trek and Star Wars. But it worked. And why did it work? Why did their differences not explode into violent arguments and debates and divisions? Why did the other disciples not choose a side and split the room? Well, look at Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 16. It says that Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. And together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. How did these two men with such massive differences work together as disciples? And the simple answer is that Jesus unified them and he brought them peace. It's what Jesus does. He can take people in groups that are at odds with each other over all sorts of things and he can unite them in, in, in himself. It means this, that when we put our faith in Jesus and follow him, that our hostility towards other people, that it dies on his cross because in Jesus, there is no separation or hostility, only reconciliation. His death on the cross accomplished this in the big picture, reconciling us to God in spite of the hostility and brokenness that our sin introduced into our relationship with him. And what Jesus has done for us in the spiritual realm, big picture, is repeated and reproduced on earth as it is in heaven. 
in our relationships with others as in our relationship with God. Jesus becomes the person that unifies and reconciles relationships. I love how Colossians 3.11 puts it. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Under Jesus, we're no longer separated by our differences, but we're united in what he's done for us. It means that all of our different backgrounds and cultures are different economics and experiences no longer matter in our relationships with each other. And the reason our differences don't matter anymore is because Jesus is all that matters. So get this, when Jesus is all that matters, all the other matters matter less. Why were Matthew and Simon able to follow Jesus together in community? Because even though their differences were as big as you can get, Jesus was all that mattered. And when Jesus is all that matters, all the other matters matter less. And when Simon and Matthew put down those other things to follow Jesus, he brought them peace and unity. See, ultimately, in choosing his disciples, Jesus showed us what the kingdom of God should look like. It should look like a diverse body of people with different backgrounds, different experiences, different passions, different ideas of how things should be done, even different levels of obedience to God. Jesus included people in his closest circle who were not only different, but had backgrounds that in our modern church approach actually should have disqualified them. I mean, Matthew, he lived like a pagan Roman. Simon the Zealot, who may have been a violent terrorist, and at a minimum, he advocated violence. And there's actually one other disciple who should have been disqualified by our standards, one who Matthew also had a descriptor for. We see him in Matthew 10.4, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. In choosing his disciples, we see this picture of radical inclusion by Jesus. Even inclusion of people who, like Matthew, were known as notorious sinners. And when we talked about Jesus' call of Matthew several weeks ago, I had a pastor friend call me to push back on how I represented Jesus' inclusion of sinners into what I had referred to as his leadership team. And my pastor friend said this. He said, yes, Jesus called Matthew, but Matthew had to change before he could be considered part of Jesus' inner circle or his leadership team. And that change must have happened much later after Matthew was called. Basically, what he was saying is that Jesus only includes people up to a certain point at which they have to make changes in order to advance any further in his kingdom. So I asked him, what about Judas? You see, Judas was one of the 12 disciples. And like we saw in Matthew 10.1, Jesus gave Judas his authority to cast out demons and to heal people. From that, we could assume that Jesus likely performed at least some miracles. And we also know from John's gospel that Judas was the person who was in charge of all of the money that funded Jesus's ministry. One could also assume that a guy who was given the authority to heal, who was responsible for the ministry's finances, who had been with Jesus for all three years of his earthly ministry, would be considered a leader, right? 
But we also know from John's gospel that Judas was stealing ministry money for himself. And we're reminded from Matthew's description that Judas was the one who ultimately betrayed Jesus to his death. Now stick with me because this is important. Based on these facts, we can only conclude one of two things. Either Jesus had no idea that Judas was stealing from him and would betray him, or we have to conclude that Jesus included someone in the highest levels of his community who is an actively unrepentant sinner. Think about that for a minute. Either Jesus was completely unaware of the actions and character of one of his closest followers and friends, or he chose to include Judas into the highest levels of his ministry in spite of those things. I clearly think that if Jesus could give Judas the authority to heal people, then he obviously knew everything else about him. So why would Jesus include someone who didn't fit our spiritual and moral model? Why didn't Jesus put more hurdles in front of Judas to either keep him off the team or at least keep him out of financial leadership? And the answer is this, it's because Jesus isn't building an organization. He's building a family. Because reconciliation is his plan and, and people can't be reconciled to God and others if they aren't included. And because when Jesus is all that matters, all of the other matters matter less. And if you live like Jesus is all that matters, you're gonna to begin to find that the differences that keep you from embracing others maybe don't really matter all that much. As we wrap up, I'd like you to ask yourself three questions. First, do I live as if Jesus is all that matters? Or do cultural things, personal things, political things, do those drive my actions and attitudes towards other people? Second, ask yourself this, am I willing to deprioritize the things that matter a lot to me, but may be harmful to the unity of the body of Christ? And finally, ask this, am I inviting and welcoming to people who are different than me? Do I have other followers of Jesus in my life who have different political views, different cultural views and backgrounds, different doctrinal beliefs, and different ways of looking at the world? Or do the people I surround myself with look like me, think like me, vote like me, talk like me? Jesus showed us what his church would look like when he chose his 12 disciples, and when he chose to include two people who should be mortal enemies, when he chose one person who would never get his act together and who would ultimately betray him. Jesus invited people in, and then he united them in peace. And I believe that as his church, as his followers, that we should go and do the same that we should be people of radical inclusion, not afraid to open our arms to people who look different than us, think different than us, believe different than us, act different than us, but instead believing this, that inviting people into a radically inclusive community that is centered around reconciliation, that the power of Jesus on the cross that put our hostility to death and reconciled us to God is the same power that can reconcile others to him and reconcile them to us as well. Let's be that community. 
and I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. Compass.